0: So, yeah, we're in a series called God Roars. And God Roars is is talking about the truth that we have a God who is, yes, tender and loving with us in the highs and lows. And we also have a God who is holy and righteous and just. And we're sitting in this prophetic book of Amos and we're trying to make sense of it all. That's a bit of the journey. Uh, We have a God who loves to guide us and walk us in every aspect of our lives as well as a God who is mysteriously working behind the scenes in ways that are frankly indiscernible. So that said, uh, some of us love the series. Other of us don't love it. I'm just going to hold it. This is too hard for me. You feel the tension? Do You feel it? You don't think I... Well, it records the message. That's the problem. And I can record it at home, but it's not like the real thing. You know? So... Uh, that's how that goes. I can say thus far it's been somewhat of an intense conversation. Pretty intense, challenging to say the least. I mean, look at our points. You know, for week one, the p- first point was no one escapes the sovereign justice of God. And the beauty of that is that if we know that God brings justice, either during or in the end, it frees us from needing to take revenge on our own, in our own hands and to love our enemy and to walk in the alleys and to pick up those who've been thrown aside. That's the beauty of that point. There are higher expectations for those called by God. We're seeing that in the people of Israel, and that goes along with us. That, as Spider-Man lore, if you know that, with great calling comes great responsibility. And beyond that, there's great consequences for uh, abstaining from our calling. And then the last point of week one is we think justice, we're tempted actually to believe that justice is calling out the injustice of others. We have this point-the-finger theology that tends to ignore our own injustices in our life. And, and reading a book from the prophets is an opportunity for us to to really contemplate, especially during this Lenten series. God, what are areas of my life that I need to bring to you? So that leads into the next week of justice socially. We came to the conclusion that sin is not just individual, and it's not just the devil. People tend to think that's the two modes of evil—that it's the flesh or the devil. There's also a collective force. Uh, principalities, systemic principalities that work in the world. We have to realize that they're collective evils in the world that left unchecked become these principalities. So in the case of Israel, when we read Amos, it's this nationalism that led to subjugation of their own people and slavery of other peoples. It led to abusing the court systems. It led to uh, classism and disparity of wealth. That was their plight. And I believe God has really complicated conversations to have for us in these conversations the second point is over time tyrannical powers whether they're peoples or groups or nations they'll be humbled over time if not overthrown that's the case with israel our history books show us that that when powers come when when nations come to powers and if they come to corruption eventually those nations are taken out Uh, and finally really a personal and collectively personal is we who are wealthy and we are wealthy must critically consider the ways that we can extort the poor. We have to think through those ways as we read this book. There are a lot of social injustices that are laid within this week in terms of um, uh, sexism and religious hypocrisy, but it tends to start and end with the poor. So what we can surmise from this is that the ways that we reject God are the, are the same ways we reject... Well, actually, let me say the way. In summary, the ways that we reject people are the many ways that we reject God. That's, that's something that we're learning in this series. And yeah, they're weighty topics, but they're often very much ignored topics within the church, particularly in our evangelical circles. And so I think God has something for us. That said, there's a tension. I feel as a communicator, there's a tension... That this can perpetuate an unhealthy image of God. Conversations like these can perpetuate unhealthy images of God. We all have nurtured distortions of our view of God. All of us do. And refining our view of God, our image of God with God, is a lifelong journey. It just is. But that, that can, like when you spend a whole season in a book like this, you can start projecting onto God. That he's angry and distant. In fact, I think it's a healthy exercise that if you were to right now doodle what you view God is. Doodle, I would love for you to, in your mind, doodle your image of God. And if you want to doodle on paper, I have some connection cards here and some pens. What would it look like for you to doodle your image of God? I want you to take a moment to either do that in your head or do it on a piece of paper, all right? It's the way you view others it's very interconnected an example of that is if God seems distant uh, you you may feel like you're unseen or you may create distance between you and others because you think that's okay I mean there's there's no one formula but if we think God is angry we may be self-protective celestial being overseeing the cosmos is it a distant king on a throne is it a captain of an army A drinking buddy? Is it a critical judge? A tender dad? A loving mom? (gasps) Did he call the father a mother? (laughs) Isaiah 49.15 says this, that can a mother forget a baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget you, I will not. There are very maternal qualities of God fact in the orphanage yesterday there was a mom in a random case there are moms who are connected to these kids and she had her weekend to just visit with her kid and as she was watching her kid walk away she couldn't walk away she just kept reaching her hand out looking for her kid what a perfect image of who God is maybe your image of God is nothing either way as you do this exercise it takes a lot of spiritual self-awareness to understand what has informed your image of God? The, the two big questions is particularly who has informed your image of God? Whether it's your close relationships, your guardians or parents, some really close friends, maybe, um, yeah, a friendship that's, that's been consistent in your life or not consistent. And then there's those temporary relationships, your exes, those bosses you had one day, some bullies that can inform your image of God. Pastors that have come and gone, maybe your pastor right now, it happens. And then experiences as well. What experiences have informed your image of God? Whether those tragedies, losses, sorrows, separations, reconciliations. It's a big exercise. If, if you don't have something that you've written down, if you couldn't doodle anything, please know there's no shame. There's no shame. But also know that it's something to further reflect on. It's a great next step for you. Maybe this is what you needed to do. Maybe this is what you need to hear today. And either way, if you really want to take this exercise of completion take whatever you've drawn and overlay it with the person of Jesus Christ read Luke 15 if you need help with that it is again our lifelong journey to refine our image of God and and somehow you have to think through the Israel people with compassion Is like what was their image of God when they were in the height of their kingdom with King David what were they thinking who God is Or maybe after King David, when his son Solomon came in and things went well and they were really prosperous, even more prosperous, what was their image of God? But then Solomon started to dance with other gods. What was their image of God at that time? And then there was a civil dispute between Solomon's son and another ruler from the north. And the kingdom splits in half and the nation is divided. And things go fairly well, but they start chasing after idols and there's infighting and there's warring with other nations. What was their image of God? Eventually, Assyria comes out and takes this northern kingdom of Israel out. What is their image of God? Eventually, Babylon takes out Assyria and then takes out the southern kingdom of Judah out. And they're taken into exile under Babylonian influence and then 60 to 70 years later, Persian influence. At that low point, what is their image of God? But then they're brought back. They're allowed back through these Persian influences. They're allowed to go back to their homeland, but things have changed. Life is different. They are not the nation they once were. What is their image of God? Centuries later, Greece takes out Persia, Rome takes out Greece, and they're becoming like the very low of society that they have oppressed. They are an oppressed people. What is their image of God? It's a whirlwind. And then at that moment, this poet, peasant prophet comes in by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who says he's the Christ. He comes at what would probably be their lowest moment and reveals who God is. And perhaps the main idea that it's the most humbling moments in our lives that awaken us to the greater truth of who God is. Maybe God's doing something with this kingdom of Israel that we cannot fathom or imagine. I told you I was reading this book for fun. I've gotten halfway through the first chapter. I'm a very slow reader. Hamilton lent me a book like a year ago, and I just finished it. I think it was 60 pages long. (laughs) It's a good book, Hemingway. This one's called The Whole Language, The Power of Extravagant Tenderness. It's written by uh, Father Gregory Boyle. He's a Jesuit priest and founder of Homeboy Industries with Homegirl Cafe. And they're the largest gang intervention rehabilitation program in the world. Um, and in his, in his books, he's, this is his third one, he's written many accounts of the stories that he's encountered. And he shares one story about a female uh, called Gloria. It's not her true name, but that's how he does, he hides her names, but her name's Gloria in the book. And, and Gloria has bouts of addiction that visit her like an unwelcome relative. And she would come to homeboy in this rehabilitation program high and joke about it at times. But during that time, when she was part of Homeboy, uh, she was enveloped by a very real darkness that would walk her to a bridge overpass. Now, this is LA. You guys know the overpasses there. You drive up the five, there's always these overpasses, right? So she's looking over the side. And she's contemplating what it would look like to see her sprawled body on the pavement below. And at that exact moment, a car drives by and somebody leans out the window and yells, just jump already. How did Gloria respond? She responded this way. Blank you, Mama jamma. You can fill in the blanks. There are two words that I will not say in there and they're both the same word. But blank you, Mama jamma. It was that entire moment that jolted her into what she would call a useful anger. Because that moment where she stuck up for herself was a moment that she realized she had an inherent dignity, where she wasn't labeled by what others say about her or by what she even says about herself, but by what God says about her. And at that moment, after she said the mamma jamma, she howled in laughter, howled in laughter, in the same way that her and Father Gregory would howl in laughter after she recounted that story. So she continued on with Homeboy. And she would sit another time in Father Gregory's office and she would tell a story of a dream she had. She said that she was slow dancing with God. And that there were very valuable and very important people that wanted to cut in with God. But God would not allow her. I'm sorry, God would not allow them. He wouldn't allow anybody to cut in on the two of them dancing. And their eyes moistened at an image of God that is so perfect and true. The same God that Jesus is. The truth is God chooses us, not just despite our messes, but completely in light of our messes. And the people that God's confronting in the book of Amos, they're not the glorias of the story. You could argue that he's confronting that person who yelled that idiotic comment. But I believe God's confronting those who are throwing people over the overpass. That's what's being described in this book. And even then, this confrontation shows that God's not just confronting them, but he's he's trying to bring them back to him. He's not opposing them. He's saying, come home, return. That is a message book that he's still lovingly even calling the oppressors of oppressors home. That's what he's doing. It's time for a nerd moment. pendulation time. Amos is written as a chiasm. Does anybody know what a chiasm is? You do, yes. Uh, Also known as a chiasmus. A chiasm is a literary device which presents ideas and then subsequently represents them and inverts them in a way thematically that creates this structure where it's like there's A and then B then there's a focal point sometimes and then there's B and then A. So a common chiasm speaking of nationalism which is okay uh, ask not what your country A can do for you ask what you can do for your country. Uh. People People don't care about how much you know, and so they know how much you care. Those are like common chiasms. There are very complex chiasms within scripture, and I'll go through a few. The Tower of Babel, which is this parable about why the nations spread out and the languages are confused, and it's this beautiful parable that kind of crescendos a prologue of uh, the first part of uh, Genesis. And you can go through it and be like, yeah, that's, that's some type of narrative or poetic imagery of how God spread the nations, but truly it's actually a chiasm that presents a very anchoring point in the middle where it it clearly says this, that the Lord came down. The focus point of the Tower of Babel, if you know that story, is this idea that the Lord comes down. That actually sets up the entire rest of the Bible, that God is coming down to visit us, that God's going to bring patriarchs and then a nation and then a kingdom and then an exiled people to show the others who who he is. That's how God comes down. Narrative of Esther. Anybody know Esther? Esther is a chiasm. It's a huge book set up as a chiasm. And don't get lost in the details. The focus is in the center of the book because there's repeated ideas. There's a king's feast and then there's a Jewish feast. Esther becomes queen. Esther gains a second day of deliverance for the Jews. There's a lot of beautiful ideas but the focus is is that this humble cousin of hers, who is the last, gets honored by his hateful energy, Haman. And it presents this idea that the first becomes last, and the last becomes first. The book of Ephesians, New Testament, that's also a chiasm. In the first part, one through three, it sets up this whole idea that you are loved, you're beloved in Christ, you're a child of God. Ephesians four through six sets up these ideas that this is how you are to live. And at the focal point is this phrase, uh, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Because of who you are, this is how we are to live. Chiasms, some people go nuts on chiasms, and they make chiasms out of everything, but it is a really useful tool for uh, people that are in oral culture, that don't have many pens or papyrus, that are trying to creatively present truth, in a way that's memorable so that it can be passed down generations so amos actually is a chiasm why do you talk about this because amos is chiasm and at the center of this chiasm is god's lament it's a call to turn to god and lament god's lament a call to turn to god and lament that is the focal point that is the anchoring of this book that we are reading in the beginning, there's judgment. In the ending, it talks about judging. There's announcement of destruction. There's visions of destruction. There's criticism on wealthy women, criticism on wealthy men, empty religious activity. But the end, the midpoint, the focal point is the call to turn to God. Repentance. Turning from God, turning from self, turning from the selfishness of sin. By That turning, I'm sorry. Let me say that again. Turning from self, turning from sinning, turning towards God, not turning from God. So that, that's the whole idea. That's where this whole book is landing. And so I'm going to read our scripture again and provide some commentary and then some reflections for us to land on. You with me? But well, we're heading to the focal point. Even right now, as we read Amos 4. This is not the main section, but it builds up to the main section. So let's read together. I'm going to get a drink of water. No, I'm not. Hear this word. You cows of Bashan, on Mount Samaria—these uh, are just pampered breeds. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your hum- husbands, "Bring us some drinks." The Sovereign Lord has sworn by His holiness: the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fishhooks. You will each go out straight. You will each go straight out through the breaches in the wall, and you will be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. So this idea of being carried out, this is, this is um, confirmed by a lot of archaeology and, and, and Assyrian art. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. These are where they practiced their cultist practices. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offering. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do declares the Sovereign Lord. So this, th- this prophetic theme of empty practices, this becomes primary throughout all of the, uh, the rest of the prophets. Songs without justice, words without actions, uh, mercy lacking, sacrifice is still there. I gave you empty stomachs in every city, and you lack bread, and lack bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me. You have not returned to me, declares the Lord. In light of their empty worship, God left the oppressors hungry and standing bread lines. And yet they were never once hungry for God. Thank you, Kim. They continued to ignore the heart of God. Verse 7, I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from other. One field had rain, another had nine, none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water but did not get enough to drink, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. This will be thematic. They did not return to God. They were never thirsty for God. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did Egypt. I killed your young men with sword along with captured horses. I filled your nostrils with stench of your camps yet you have not returned to me. Return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire, yet you have not returned to me. So with all this consequential calamity, this oppressive nation never considered, are we off here? Is there something about the way that we're living that is off here? Now, this is not an opportunity to take any random tragedy and believe that you did something wrong. However, I would, never describe, I would never prescribe that. However, it is worth discerning that if there's social unrest or ecological disasters, so to speak, you gotta think, is this an opportunity to turn to you, God? Or is there something happening here? It's an opportunity for discernment. Everything, highs and lows, are an opportunity to turn to God. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. There's so much mystery in this phrase. It's alluding to the fact that Assyria will be coming in 40 years and will conquer this oppressive nation. But even if you read the book of Hosea, which is the very next book, when he calls them to meet them, it's filled with love language. Will you now return to me? I actually would say, if you read this book, also read the book of Hosea. It has strong language, but also shows a bit of a metaphor of what now does God want for his people. He who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, who reveals thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord God Almighty is his name. Again, in the midst of knowing our Jesus This is also knowing that Jesus is God and God is sovereign and holy. They said that God is a God of high places. This is why they build mountains on high places. Even the holy of holies, many commentators believe, is just the footstool for God. The most sacred place on earth at that time was just God's footstool. That was until he came to earth as a poetic peasant and washed our feet and tore that temple into two or toward the curtain of the temple in the two, not the temple. This previous conversation is about the waste of worship of oppressors. We're going to talk about that next week. should be fun. The following is indeed the heart of the passage, the anchoring point. Hear this word Israel, this lament I take concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. God's grieving because she will never be what she once was, never be the nation that she was. This is what sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will only have a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will only have ten left. Even in light of Assyria coming, they're going to try to march out and fight this tidal wave. And it doesn't bode well for them. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. This is the invitation and our challenge. This is the invitation of life. Do not go to Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. These are empty places, idols. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing, all empty places of worship. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like fire. It will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. Again, this is about the corrupt nationalism that led to corrupt practices of policies, procedures, institutions of injustice, instead of being a people of justice. This again, I feel like it's a healthy reminder, the people who struggle with this writing the most are the academic circles within European and Northern American circles. Countries that are more deprived and more diverse, they read the book of Amos, and they're like, God sees me. God sees my oppression. I understand that he's for me, even if others are against me. So it was the heartbeat of MLK's uh, ministry. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turned midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. God is the God of the cosmos, of creation. He wakes up the earth. He puts it to bed. He takes water from the ocean and gives the land a drink. But the blinding flash, he's destroyed the stronghold and bring the fortified city to ruin. God isn't sovereign. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. It is common for people who are hearing this, as well as um, people who are not God's people, to despise this type of language. I just want you to know if you feel like, ugh, I don't like this, it's actually really common that people despise this idea that God is in control because it points to our lack of control. Now he calls out again the injustices. You levy straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, you have built stone mansions and you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how great your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice and courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times. For the times are evil. This is just, again, a few of their discretions. Seek good, not evil. Let's repeat in many ways of verse four, seeking God. To seek good is to seek God, that you may live. God wants life for us. That's the mystery. That when we bring life to others, we experience life. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say He is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. This is a, another huge theme that's carried through the end of the Old Testament. This idea of a remnant, though the nation does perish, survivors will carry on. This is what the Lord. The Lord this is what the Lord. The Lord God Almighty says. There will be wailing in all streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all vineyards for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. So that section even has its own beginning and bookend. This is God's lament. And since you have not seen God's lament or lamented our injustice, their injustice, we will lament our consequences. So yes. That's our scripture for today. Quick one, right? We don't typically do this if you're visiting. We don't typically do this. We just, I felt, our leadership team felt like, all right, this is a book that God has for us during this series to just be exposed to, to survey, to understand so that God can use this in ways to grow our image of him and his power and his love and his justice. So as I've done, I'm going to offer just a few reflections. And this, you want to, when you preach a message, when you look at a text, you want your study to be fairly airtight. But when you contextualize a message, that's where you have to study your community, pray, and ask God, what is the word that you'd have from us that's represented in this text? So this is this is what I've sensed. When it comes to seeking God and seeking good, the first point would be this: three simple reflections, maybe not simple, but they'll be quick. That our social status, whether it's national, financial, vocational may seem fine today, but could be gone tomorrow. That our social statuses may seem fine today, but could be gone tomorrow. I'm not a prophet speaking into your life right now. This is just a truth uh, that is historically true and I believe scripturally true. Rather than reflect on individual lives, it's a reminder that we belong to like a greater, wealthier environment where the freedom of religion reigns, but mercy may be lessening. So something to consider as we pan out and consider our place in this cosmos. In the text, the prosperous, they continue worship uh, practices in order almost to like superstitiously maintain their prosperity. I'm not saying that's us, but it's something to be aware of. They never considered their wealth And rather than look at the world around them, they were focused on their lives and their bank accounts and how things are going and coming up with this idea that God has completely blessed their lives. That's what Israelite was struggling with. And it it was an ignorance that led to a greater impending calamity. So first point, our social status, whether it's national, financial, vocational, may seem fine today, but could be gone tomorrow. Second point today, our spiritual status today is maintained by caring for those who lack social status. Because tomorrow, it may be maintained by caring for each other. If you link that to the first point, understanding that what we have today might not be here tomorrow, we are called today to care for those who have no status because it'll actually train us, rewire us to learn to care for each other if when times are hard. The mission is not some box that you check off as a church. And I struggle with this the most because I live, my worldview is one of boxes. I'm an achiever. If you know Gallup Strength Finders, that's my number one. So like I, I think through my life at times as boxes. And you can think through like, okay, mission, check, I did it. Continue in God's favor. And that's not what it's about. God wants life for us as we give life to others. God rewires us. God teaches us. We care for those who have none so that we can learn really what it means to care for each other and to know, importantly, how God cares for us. That's what it's all about. It's not a box to check off. And it's a box. It's not a box. We do it because God cares for us now, because he dances with us as he dances with Gloria. Today, our spiritual status is maintained. That's a... I don't know if I like that word, actually. Because you're justified in Christ at any point. Like, I get people who are really heady. Or, like, thinking, like, eh, that's not true. You know, like, Hebrews 13.5 doesn't leave you or forsake you. I get that. 1 Corinthians 13, those who escape, who do nothing, can still escape by the fire. God's grace is that big. I believe it. But heady people, start thinking about how you're caring about the poor. And how that shows, how that will be a way though God got to show God's love to you. It's a tension there. So I don't want to, like, make a workspace faith here. I'm not trying to do that but these books exist for a reason. So take that point as you will. We steward our spiritual status by carrying those who have no status. That's the, uh, that's the strike through on maintain. Third point, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want, our call at all times is to seek God together. That whatever we do, Jesus is our focus. God is our focus. He's the one who guides us in these things. Uh. It is an opportunity, as the psalmist say, to, hey, Lord, I want you to search me. Let me know if there's any offensive way of me. It's also an opportunity to say, as the psalmist says, to lead me into the ways everlasting to cast our cares, to cast ourselves into God. The whole point, whether times are high or low, as that song was, is that we would cast ourselves before God, into God's arm. That means our frustrations, our sorrows, our fears, our questions, our doubts, our struggles, so that God can carry us. So that through God's mighty power, I think that second song was like, even in our weakness, God's love comes through. Through our mighty power, we might be Lift it up high enough that we can lift others up. Amen? Amen. All right. I think we covered it. So I'm going to pray for us. I do want us to consider to pray together. What does it look like for us as a church to continue to step into opportunities? And yeah, maybe there are opportunities that don't work out for our life stage. This is why we're going across the border. Help us discern in this. Help me discern in this. Help our leaders discern in this. Join us in this. And and, and God, what God wants from us, it's always something God has for us. His love is that big. The mystery of the life that he has is that great. So let's pray together as I invite the band up. Lord, thank you for the ways that you stretch us and you grow us. Thank you, Jesus, that you, in many ways, ah, Represent the voice. You are the voice, Lord, calling us, saying to seek me and live. You are the voice, God. God, give us grace and compassion as we seek to know you more. Even as I was like writing this message, I, I sensed your hand on me as a, almost as a student, just trying to love you and know you more. So God, would you would you put your hand on the shoulders of your people? Would you lift them up? We want to know you more, God. We, we recognize that we fall short, God, and that you meet us in that moment, that you want to lift us up. You just say, come to us. It's not because of the things that we do. We come to you because, Lord, we need healing. And from that healing, you do a miraculous work. You show us the way through that cross that through suffering and sacrifice, there's life to be given. So God, in this Lenten season, would you waken us up to our need for you and help us to put aside the things that matter less. Teach us, God, what it means to be your people. Guide us in the ways everlasting. If there's any offensive way of me, God, I pray that you would remove that and with the words of our mouth and meditation in our hearts be pleasing in your sight because you are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.